Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents a lecture by Carolyn Nordstrom, professor of anthropology at the University of Notre Dame. Her talk, entitled Emergent Seas, concludes the 2008 Frankie Lecture Series on Mental Geography, Mapping, Cognition, Appropriation, Inscription. At the end of her lecture, Professor Nordstrom invites Paul Farmer to speak. Paul Farmer is a renowned anthropologist and physician and one of the founders of Partners in Health, an international health and social justice organization. I'm going to start out with something that is so obvious and then take you on a journey. And what's obvious is not how you pronounce this man's name, which I had to ask on several times, but Badiou says, reality is. Reality is. And what is, is worth understanding. But for whatever reason, we tend to see our social universes as highly multiplex. And I had a really hard time trying, and you'll see as I begin to talk, what I mean by the difficulty of finding a word for this. What is it that is multiplex? And I'll walk you through some of this, but I finally decided that what I would talk about was plexus. Plexus, P-L-E-X-U-S, is wonderful because it's both singular and plural. And because it's an old word that means to braid, to weave together. It's a network, a braided network. So essentially what I want to ask you to walk through with me tonight is what it feels like to stand in a given social space and to be able to see and not see some of that which unfolds all around us and why. I'm going to use an example which I particularly love at this point in time, and it's a simple one. Trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars are moving around the world every year outside the law in some way or another, outside of formal accounting. And that means to do that, millions of people, untold numbers of goods and exchanges and relationships are girding this. A lot of it we don't see. And that is, we don't see as a public eye. And I want, to, I want you to hold the eye in, in, in brackets there for a minute, because I'm going to get back to the eye. But what I want to say is, as I'm introducing this, is that we stand in the midst of this. And it's an important point, because we tend to say, well, if we don't see something, it's because it's peripheral. Well, I don't want to talk about things that are peripheral. They may exist, but they're not of interest to me now. We may say that we have different scales. That's kind of a cool thing right now, space and scales. That if you're operating on one scale, it's very hard to have a certain kind of understanding of another scale. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about within the same scale of reference. Sometimes we talk about outside, outside our scope of reference, our frame of discussion, that which we can see and not see. I'm not talking about that either. I'm talking about we are standing in the middle of a multiplex social universe and we see some of it, and we don't see some of it. And why? Well, part of the answer is, but it's not enough, is that we've been taught not to see, in Bedeu's terms, what is, in many cases. All right, I have been in, and I'll thank you for a wonderful introduction, I've been fascinated in all the work I've been doing on extra state and extra legal economies and powers 
with why so much of this is invisible to our public discussions, our textbooks, our publications, our news, our sort of daily conversations. And I've charted some of the ways in which they're invisible. And I've pondered how you make things invisible that are shaping our everyday lives. And I pretty much come up with a good set of associations that proves that people are making a lot on these invisibilities. These are not haphazard or random. Power, money, profit, all kinds of things are being generated through the production of invisibilities. Okay, I got that far. But today I want to add a new angle. Turn the page. In getting back to this question, I took a, and it's funny that you asked me to speak about mental geographies because I stumbled recently across the whole series of fields of psychogeography, situationalism, um, mental geographies, and became fascinated with some of the answers these held for me. But most of this work has been done by people who are interested in sort of the everyday, the wastelands, the workers' areas, the, the random. And I'm not interested in the random. I am interested in all those arenas that take you from power to powerlessness, with the pedantic in between, everything. Now, I ran across, and I'm going to draw on for today because it's such a great, concise discussion. Guiliana? Guiliana? Guiliana Bruno, if I'm saying her name right, she's Italian, out of Harvard. And she says it's time to move beyond a sort of academic universe or a sense of social analysis that is based so strongly in optics, what we see and don't see. And she says it's time to reincorporate our sense of haptics. Haptics is the old Greek word, actually, hapticos, um, that refers to perception. But it's a form of perception that involves touch, relationships, sensations. It's a form of knowing based on more than just seeing. Well, Bruno, in a book, if you're interested, it's a wonderful book, it's called Atlas of Emotion where she sort of updates the situationalist and psychogeography in a, several other schools. She's actually looking at the relationship in, between architecture and film. She's a bit away from my global criminal systems, but her ideas work across the board. She says she's interested in moving from optics, from this profound reliance we have in Western epistemology on, I see it, I see to understand, to haptics, to that sense of being involved in relations, in a sensational way of perception. Well, I actually don't think that we need to move from one to the other. I think we just need to add them together. And I was talking with a friend of mine who was dropping me off at the airport, a colleague, and he said, oh, you mean hoptics, which is haptics and optics. I'm like, that's good. That's very good. Um, the <laughs> thing about haptics is it's about movement. All right, for Bruno, she sees space in a way that I find fascinating. She said space has a sense of sentience to it. And it has this because the haptic, haptic relations are relational. 
They involve reciprocity. They involve the sense of extending into space the relationships we have so that space itself has a vibrancy, has a sense of sentience. And she doesn't mean this in a poetic way. She just means that sense of the giving meaning to that which exists in the relationships among people. For her, the haptic are affective localities. And I want to read you a quote. She says, haptic sense actually can be understood as geographic in a global way. It measures, interfaces, borders our relations to our world. And it does so habitually, which means there's a strong sense, I'm not going to develop this here, but a strong sense of habitus in what we are taught to recognize or perceive and what we're taught not to perceive. For her, this links with a very, in and of course this goes right to the topic of your interest, this links to a, an intimate terrain of self. So all of these arenas are profoundly interactive. And because of this, they are always emergent. It is movement. It is about moving. It is about creating. It is not about static understandings. OK, completely lost. I'll give you an example. Um, I'll walk you through some of my interest in this in one specific way. And I'm going to do the example in honor of Paul Farmer, because it first, it, the example developed in a conversation we all had in SAR. Paul set up a conference uh, a couple years ago. And this is when I first began trying to peel away the, the confusing layers of understanding this. And for me, let's take a kid, a youth in Africa. Could be anywhere. Let's say Angola. I've worked there. And take a gunshot. Child gets shot and lives. We see that in our very, see that, we see that in our very sort of traditional optic way as being very far from us, as being very removed from the worlds in which we live. But I want to walk you through what I see in my research, what I sense in my research, what I perceive in my research, which I have had a hard time explaining, and why these haptic communities, rather than just optical understanding, becomes useful for me. So I want to walk you through four things here. First, I want to talk about the multiplex networks, the plexus radiating out from this one act. Child gets shot. I want to talk about the haptic associations of this, bring it to life, make it vibrant. I want to talk about emergent fractures or fault lines. And I'll explain those. You'll have to put this together like a detective novel. And I'm going to end with showing why in these instances and what I'm talking about, these kinds of relationships can be emergencies. They aren't necessarily. I'm just going to give some examples that are because it will ultimately relate to the fact that we are in a global economic meltdown, and this helps explain it. OK, I want to just walk you through several of these multiplex associations. A child gets shot. All right, let's take the first logical set of networks. Well, how'd that child get shot? It has to be a bullet. There has to be something to propel that bullet. And if you begin, which I have over the space of a number of years, and as an anthropologist, I literally walked these lines, these haptic associations, which is why I'm interested in this, 
in this discussion of haptic because I, I walked with these people. I watched them sell this. I traveled on the trucks that delivered these. I interviewed the smugglers. I interviewed the producers of arm circuits, weapons, this whole world of, of what makes it possible to shoot somebody. And ultimately, if you follow this, you realize that it's a global circuit. No question about it. It's a global circuit of tremendous power because you're talking about money making almost beyond your conception. They figure the legal arms industry at over a half a trillion dollars a year. It could be several hundred billion, depending on how people count. Sometimes China isn't counted because it's difficult. <laughs> But that's not the whole story. If you add in, all right, we can kind of track this. It's difficult. We can kind of track that. But one of the arenas that we're taught not to see are the invisible arm circuits. Well, people are starting to deal with this. But we don't even know how big it is. People are estimating anywhere from 100 to $500 billion a year is made in illegal weapons sales. Now, you're talking about nearly a trillion dollars on things that can kill people a year. Well, up until September, and I don't know what it is now, the global economy was at about 67 to $75 trillion. It's one out of every $65 is going to some form of weapons. That's a lot of power. These are not isolated cases. These are associations of people who know one another. I'm producing weapons. I take them to you. You happen to know that he has a truck. You happen to be married to the sister of a man who happens to work in another country, who is linked in with a group of people who want to buy this, who have resources and diamond mines that are able to do this. It's a global circuit. And it moves around the world in a constant, unending flow. The players may change, but the circuits remain vibrant. It's a haptic association. All right, I want you to keep these levels in mind, but I don't want to spend too much time on any level because my point is to show you a series of haptic associations that are fractures. But this is a fracture line. All this profiteering, that whole arena of global flow around the arms, will, I will argue, represent a fracture line. All right, this youth gets shot. She had nothing or he had nothing to do with war or anything, walking down the street, trying to go to the market. Now they're shot. Youth needs medicines. Well, the reason I bring this up is that we tend to be trained to see series of associations around arms and weapons trafficking, or profiteering, I should say. We traffic people. We don't, for some interesting reason, tend to see the same complex, extra-legal, associations around pharmaceuticals. There is, and I followed it for a year, there is as developed a series of global associations moving pharmaceuticals around the world. And I wanted to put these two side by side to show you how we are trained to see and not see. Very similar circuits. There are legal pharmaceutical companies selling things across the line of the law illegally and smuggling them to make money. There are illegal pharmaceutical companies making things counterfeit that are bad. There are illegal companies making counterfeit 
drugs that are good. There are legal companies making bad pharmaceuticals. They are all flowing through the same series of associations and linkages. A producer happens to know somebody who is working with, <coughs> excuse me, a community. These are running through NGOs. They're running through trading networks. They're running alongside food. It's an extremely well-developed series of relationships that we are taught not to perceive. This is the second fault line. It's perhaps even more dangerous than the first one because not only is it as lethal, you move millions of dollars of drugs around the world that you don't know if they're safe or not, if they even have active ingredients or not. You're talking about the potential to create a level of lethal impact that is almost staggering. How often do you hear about this? How often do you hear about cocaine and heroin and, and what's going on in Afghanistan? Well, these are luxury drugs that people choose to take. The impact is certainly there, but it's nothing like the impact of bad antibiotics or bad cancer drugs. Yet, the created invisibility is very powerful. Let me add another one. Our youth, to get these medicines, has to have money. These are produced in Western countries. No Western, for the most part, Western countries, multinational corporations, I shouldn't say Western, I, I, let me use the word cosmopolitan because anybody who has a currency that trades on the international market is not going to take a war-torn currency in exchange for their pharmaceuticals. They want something that trades on the international market. They want either hard currency of some form that's useful in banks or they want a resource like diamonds or zinc or fish or timber or something that trades on the commodity markets. All right, for anybody to buy cosmopolitan products, and remember, I could be speaking of food here, I could be speaking of energy sources, I'm just merely speaking of pharmaceuticals right now. Works for any of these basic life necessities. Somebody has to go to work. What's a youth going to do? Sell their body is what they're going to do. They have one and only one option. They sell their body. Because if they've been shot, they're probably not in the elite. They're probably just us. Which means they don't have access to the kind of goodies that buy. Sorry, I thought I was going to pull that off. The resources of the world. What do you sell your body for? You sell it for labor, in the sexual markets, the domestic markets, the industrial markets, the agricultural markets. But these are set up, this is another set of associations where people get children and use and disenfranchised people, the powerless, to work in often dangerous and very not well paid ways to produce the goods that we depend on in the cosmopolitan centers of the world. Our tomatoes, our furniture, our clothing, whatever it is that we tend to use, is coming from the kind of youth that ends up getting shot. And these circuits are, again, very clearly relational in the sense that they can be studied. Somebody is moving something somewhere. We can walk these circles. We can interview these people. I have interviewed these people. And yet, we don't. We're taught not to look. Perhaps, and I don't know why, because tonight we'll all go for dinner. 
and we will eat food that will be a few pennies cheaper because I promise you something you are eating for your dinner tonight has been produced by a youth that's being underpaid in one of these largely invisible circles. It's just a fact. Maybe that's it, maybe it's not it. I leave you to figure out why these invisibilities are created. But that's another fracture line or fault line. It's a third one. And part of this, remember, embedded in the possibility to shoot a child, to smuggle illegal pharmaceuticals, to use cosmopolitan products based on child labor or desperate labor, creates a global ethic that this is acceptable. And that's another more subtle fault line, that these ethics, somehow this, the very ethics of creating invisibility are also circling the globe. I want to talk about one last point because I think it bears directly. I actually published some of this in a different form, predicting the collapse, which I'll talk a little bit about today, of, and I didn't say when, I wish I were that good, but predicting we would face a serious social economic collapse two weeks before we crashed, which I'm very proud of. And part of it's because of, of just following these lines of association. These are real, solid lines that we can study that tell us what's going on in the world. All right, let's talk about, you've got all this money. Invisibly generated, what do you do with it? Well, you have to launder it. Money is useless unless it's laundered. Well, if you control laundering processes, you control a chunk of money that can sway stock markets, by the way in which you invest, invisibly, can affect currency valuations, by the way in which you use it, moving it in and out of banks and countries, that can affect interest rates. Remember, we're talking about trillions of dollars yearly moving around the globe unrecorded. You move those in ways that are unrecorded into the legal economy. The ability to impact that economy is tremendous. At the most conservative, they're figuring one out of $10 is laundered. My information tends to suggest it's much higher than that. I want to say that Sadly, a lot of what I'm talking about here is a foundation for sovereignty. Nations may decry these activities. They may be illegal. But they are generally not prosecuted. They are made invisible. Because, as I interviewed a wonderful um, laundering expert in South Africa, uh, Charles Grodmore, and he was saying that if you have hundreds of billions of dollars moving through your financial systems. You have perceived power, whether it's recorded or unrecorded. Would you choose to turn that away? Would the United States choose to stop a flow of money that gives it more economic power as far as it's concerned? Would you want it to go to Canada or Mexico or somewhere else in the world? Well, of course not. Do you want to buy your products a little bit more cheaply? Well, no, you don't want child labor, but you do want those products cheaper. So. Please remember that a lot of the laws that we have and the outrage that's generated is a magic trick. You're intended to look here while the trick is taking place over here. You're not supposed to see that, in fact, much of what we rail against is encouraged behind the sheet of invisibility that's created because it's perceived as profitable, as power. 
But before I get back to that, and I will, I want to talk about one of the really serious impacts and why I'm talking about fractures and emergencies in this context. These associations, these haptic networks that I'm talking about, these networks of real people really associating, not the optical gaze, but real people in real life, these kind of profiteering networks are about profit, okay? They're not about the social good. They're about profit. They are about using profit for power, which means, in many ways, they are about being offshore. Because as you move, your ability to manipulate unrecorded goods, commodities, services, monies offshore, you simply open up the level of opportunities that you have. It's about keeping it in company in terms of multinational corporations, moving resources, monies from country to country within a company and not through a taxation system that provides social services. And a lot of this is extra legal. It takes place outside the legal arena. It takes place outside the formal accounting of the state, which means you are sacrificing social services. You are not getting schools and roads and healthcare systems and kinds of emergency systems that you need to take care of a population in times of stress. You are not getting infrastructural development. And you are not getting the kind of stable community response to any kind of emergency, which I'll get back to. Now step over here for a minute because I'm going to add an insert. <laughs> This is, a this, is, this is a haptic association. I am speaking in this paper of emergencies, of dangerous fracture lines. But I want to definitely stress here that this is not the only reality when I'm speaking of extra legal systems. When I was charting these realities around the world, there are a whole lot of people around the world that are using invisible, to us, to formal accounting, invisible profiteering systems for the public good. I've been in war zones all over the world, and people are bringing in pharmaceuticals, they're bringing in food, they're bringing in energy, they're bringing in industrial resources, they're bringing in anything and everything a community could need to rebuild those communities and to provide the social services that are not being provided. I love contradictions, and this is a contradiction. We just can't say, oh, all of this is bad. It's not. And in a terrible lack of infrastructure, some people are actually using these same systems to develop their countries, countries that they care very much about. I'm not speaking about those today, though. Back over here to the dangerous parts of it. Okay, we have all these plexus, these networks moving around the world, some we see and some we don't see. We've got the arms, things like pharmaceuticals and everyday realities that make our life possible, like um, medicines and, and shoes and textbooks and industrial parts and copper wire and all of this is smuggled, which is simply amazing and made invisible in many really important ways. The level of invisibility surrounding the basic minerals that we use in our cosmopolitan production centers is astounding. All of this, for the most part, the elites of the political and economic world not in the war zones necessarily, but let's say here in the United States, the elites, regardless of whether this is cast as legal or illegal, the elites see this 
as an avenue to power. If you gain more money, control your resources better, have access to the kinds of resources you might not legally, if you launder money in ways where you can control your markets more effectively, you have more power. That's the belief. But what I want to argue here is that, in fact, these, these networks I've been putting out here are fracture zones. They are fault lines in the most basic sense of the term. They are lines of incredible vulnerability. We're not seeing it because we're not taught to see, as Padua says, what is in its completeness. And I use the term fault line to begin with because essentially if you look at something like this poor youth being shot, and if you look, that, that would be an earthquake. For him or her, a very large one. For people in industrial centers around the world, perhaps they wouldn't see it as desperate. But in fact, it is. Because if you have all these zones of radiation, excuse me. <coughs> excuse me, just a sec. You have all these fracture zones radiating out from this one act. And they represent vulnerabilities because they aren't recorded, because this money is being invested in illegal and unrecorded ways, because social services are being diverted, because ethics that allow child labor are being institutionalized within the frameworks of the working world. Because of all this, we may not see it because of that sense of invisibility. But the vulnerability is so great that a very small shock, let's say in the United States, can be far more damaging than we would ever expect because our financial systems are not stable. You can't run hundreds of billions of dollars through financial systems unrecorded in ways that are irresponsible and expect them not to be unstable. You can't have those kinds of ethics and not expect them to affect your own country. I want to read the end of this because I wanted to talk this rather than read a paper. And a lot of this is new. I've just been working out some of this new theory, so the chance of speaking it made it a little bit more fluid. But just to sum this up so I make sure that I've got the points clear. I want to talk about the sense that, and, and when I'm talking about the sense of the fracture zones, keep in mind something like Katrina, where we were all surprised as a country that basic resources, there weren't buses to take care of people. There was no way to get clean water to people. Simple things were not possible. None of us could imagine our wildest dreams that in America, simple infrastructural resources were not there. Imagine something on a much larger scale an attack in America, a pandemic. These are shocks that are, are very damaging. And as I said, I, the first piece of, of this was published two weeks before our crash. And I do believe that part of the problem is that this is so central to the way in which we do our business and our politics in the world that we are not encouraged to study these things. If we are to look at what is truly being smuggled, we will see 
that the vast majority of it are everyday products from legal multinational corporations. Got a book on that part so you can check those statistics. If we start looking into the infrastructure, we will see the buses and the clean water systems and response teams aren't there. And that will throw us into a quandary, so we don't look. The invisibilities are created very strategically. Okay, to summarize these linkages, cosmopolitanism is embedded in industrial culture, which requires cheap and readily accessible raw materials, minerals, food, bodies, and loyalty to the system. Since loyalty within systems of inequality is difficult to achieve, creating circuits of cosmopolitan commodities for resources in context of political violence ensures desperate workforces. In order to translate profit into power, the extra legal is often exploited, and both financial and commodity flows are rendered opaque. They can thus be used to create economic and political power in ways that cannot, by definition, be assessed or controlled. This goes far beyond a loss of taxes and a failure to promote national development and services. It speaks to an embedded political philosophy as worldview that values these cosmopolitan industrial developments over the welfare of its citizenry. Resources are moved into these large-scale and perhaps extra-legal corporate domains and away from generalized infrastructure and services, medicine, transport, education, safety, and planning for crises, disasters, and violence. Elite political and economic regimes can survive for a while through the combination of diverting national resources to industry, maintaining stark systems of inequality that ensure profits, gutting social services, creating extra-legal financial empires capable of shaping national economies, and using violence to enable these systems. However, there is a time limit on this. And this is why I actually predict our crisis is going to be much worse than anybody's really letting on in the public eye. Financial systems that are ostensibly based on legal transactions but are in fact shaped by unregulated extra-legal actions will not stay stable. When banking systems fail, the financial justification for the state falters. When social services are not operating, when core logistics such as food, clean water, safe housing, medicines, critical transport, and security cannot be provided, state institutions lose their viability. Externally, this leaves a country vulnerable to foreign aggression, and internally, people vote with their feet. They will develop systems that meet their needs, and these will probably be extra-state systems. Governing forces often react with violence to people's decisions to develop alternative economic and authority systems. But as Hannah Arendt has demonstrated, when states resort to violence to maintain their power, they are on the verge of collapse. The final irony, of course, is that the people who have, have orchestrated these systems, who have authored them, put them into place, see them as means to power, are as vulnerable to these kinds of collapse, perhaps more so. I want to end with a question. It was really hard for me to do this research. There isn't much written on it. I had to go out and walk these lines. I learned about this from going to smugglers and going like, can you teach me this? And they can see it. As an alternate question, I want to ask you if they can see all these complicated multiplex networks girding the world's economy and political systems. And most of us as researchers cannot. Who has power? 
why aren't we seeing this, and what do we need to do about it as academics? And Ogino has a wonderful quote I'm going to read you, sort of in my final summation here. This is the quote. If uncertainty is found in society, then those who examine society, let us for a moment now call them sociologists, should view society in the same way as the con man. This is to examine a world shrouded in morality by going back to its origins, a state in which pure cons, pure imagination, and pure transformation is possible. And it was funny because as I was coming here, I didn't know who would be here. I merely knew I, I was coming. That's all I knew. And you'll understand what I'm saying in a minute. And I was thinking, we really don't study this stuff. What are the models for starting to map what I'm calling these haptic associations, these haptic communities? Bruno calls them haptic cartographies, or haptic map systems, or haptic associations. Um, and then I realized, it was funny, because I realized, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's some people who are doing this brilliantly. For example, and I was on the airplane thinking about this yesterday, I was thinking, Paul Farmer. Paul Farmer has his book like Pathologies of Power. It's exactly what he does. Here's somebody who has, on his own, essentially figured out how to begin to illuminate what we, as a formal world system, have tried to deem invisible. And I arrived, and Hans says, do you know who's coming tomorrow? I'm like, no, who? He's like, Paul Farmer. I'm like, well, how perfect is that? So about Two minutes before I walked in here, I said to Paul Farmer, you know, actually, when I finish my talk, I'm just going to simply have to hand it to you because it's just the right place. Because he is somebody on his own that has begun to figure out how to illuminate these global invisibilities in ways that will make a difference. And personally, I think that's our call in the upcoming decades as scholars, to have a sense of accountability to the world that is unfolding around us. So if you don't mind, I'm going to turn it over to you. He's probably going to kill me for this, but let's give him a hand. I'm a physician and an anthropologist, and actually, I came here because uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, my best friend teaches here, Hans Hasse. And on email, he was telling me about uh, this seminar series, and he asked me if I knew a, an anthropologist who might be able to contribute in a meaningful manner to uh, a discussion of mental geographies. And uh, I had just read. Um, I think I've read all of Carolyn Nordstrom's books, but I had just finished her new one, uh, which is called Global Outlaws. And um, it's, a, it's a fairly, it's an astounding book, and, I, and, I'm, um, and, and it's, she didn't discuss it today, and I would encourage that you read it. It's a, it's a, it's an, she calls it an essay. It's, not, it's a, sh a shorter book than some of her others. And it e explores uh, criminality, but in a very systemic way. And, the, when I was hearing her comments today, uh, having been told on the way up the stairs that she would do this, you know, uh, and then Han saying, yes, you have to do this, then I, my palms started sweating, and, <laughs> and I asked for a pen and a piece of paper, which is a graduate student from Yale's paper. I will give it back. <laughs> um, 
And I, I, I thought about uh, Carolyn's work, including what she just, uh, what she just said in, in the following way. And uh, I, I, I mentioned that I'm an anthropologist. I did my PhD at the same time that I did my MD in an MD-PhD program, and this was in the 80s. And at the time, in 1986, when uh, I did my pro-seminar at, at a small community-based college in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which I'm, I won't mention by name here, there was a, uh, uh, an essay published, not on my, uh, uh, which was trying to take the pulse of, of anthropology. It was by uh, George Marcus and Michael Fisher. And uh, you know, it was very helpful to have one of these sort of essays just as you're beginning your pro-seminar, especially if you've been off in medical school and, and doing something very different from social theory or, or anthropology. And in it, I remember uh, reading, and I shared this uh, essay with Han, who was also a graduate student at, uh, here at Yale at the time. I read uh, the, the claim that an anthropology accountable to history and political economy, a symbolic anthropology rather, accountable to history and political economy has yet to be written. And that was a very helpful thing for a graduate student to read because I was working at the time in, in Haiti and I started using uh, um, a language uh, which again was not at all original but uh, trying to think about the ethnographically visible and how that could and should be illuminated by what is invisible and how could one possibly do that without understanding history and political economy. And again, I, I have to, to thank Han, who in addition to being my great friend is also someone who's uh, edited all of my work for the last 20 years and, and we discussed this a great deal. But when I began reading Carolyn Nordstrom's work, especially the last few years, I understood that it is possible to dismiss as ethnographically invisible much that could be rendered visible through hard work and through, by dint of really what I, I would call, it's very funny to call it aggressive ethnography because Carolyn, as maybe you can tell, is, is, does not come across as a very aggressive person. And I hope you get to have dinner with her tonight, you'll see what I mean. But her, her work is, is very aggressive. And when she says that she's going to follow fault lines, she literally means on foot, by boat, on a bicycle, hanging around with smugglers and arms dealers, following what it is they're doing. And it's, it's somewhat, and I, this is using a rather unfortunate metaphor, but it's rather disarming to have, if I would imagine, my, my arm smuggling days are over, but I would imagine were I an arm smuggler and I had, you know, a, uh, a genial anthropologist, of course they don't, it's not a term that's trafficked about very much along with all the other things that we trafficking anthropologist, having a genial anthropologist hop into my truck or get on my cargo ship and start asking questions like, what's in this container? And well, let's go have a beer. And you know, I was telling some, some students of Hans today in, in this very room that anthropology, and, and I, I, my, uh, my colleagues in anthropology I think will recognize this as a compliment and not a slur. Uh, anthropology is sort of a scam because it's, you know, you can get a PhD just by schmoozing with people, you know, as long as you write your book down. Well, a a Carolyn is willing to go live in gutters and sewage systems with displaced children, children displaced by war, and then more recently this astounding work on criminality in which she does follow, she follows commodities, and when these commodities are weapons, uh, cigarettes, uh, pharmaceuticals of all sorts. And the, what I'd like to say, and I'm going to turn this into, into a question, uh, a rather crass question, uh, but it does come up 
uh, in hearing Carolyn's uh, talk today. So the production of invisibilities that she has studied so aggressively through her anthropology of moving along the fault lines. And, and again, I, if you read this book I, I, uh, that I just mentioned, Global Outlaws, you'll find that in order to conduct this research, uh, that meant for her going into a shipyard, getting on a transatlantic cargo ship uh, without an invitation or a ticket, all right, and hanging around in the cargo hold until she's discovered, and what do the the sailors say when they discover hers, let's go have dinner. Two weeks on a cargo ship, no ticket, hanging around, talking about these global fault lines and how it all works. And then she lands in a, in a Dutch port, which I won't mention by name, but was a source of much amusement when we were children because it had a funny name. Um, and, uh, and is found in the cargo, in, in, the, in the port, by, I remember very clearly from the book, a, a man who's the watchman who's, who's there with his wife and a, 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 their son, one of their sons, and he says to her, ma'am, ma are, are you lost? And she said, well, I am a little bit, actually. He said, well, where are you going to go? And she said, to the airport. And he said, shall I call you a cab? She goes to the airport, gets on the plane, where she does have a ticket for that, but no one says to her, why is she, how did you end up in, you know, the low countries? You know, where is your passport stamp? That's the kind of research that Carolyn Nordstrom has done to reveal what is largely invisible. And I have this great respect for her. Obviously, she, as I think you can tell, she's also a friend of mine, but I have a respect for the kind of dogged ethnography that she has done to render these mental geographies visible and to move our boundary of what is invisible, uh, ethnographically invisible, to, to in fact ethnographically visible. And also, and this is where I think her contribution has been greatest is to take to you know I mentioned already the moving of the invisible to the visible that is putting this in our frame of view in, 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 and as she said today and these these haptic connections um, but also she does link um, all of this to the large-scale political and economic forces that are still difficult to see and by throwing into into relief really um, this uh, transnational political economy, of goods and services, you know, including the illegal traffic, or extra-legal traffic goods, but also the services of, you know, selling of bodies for various uh, purposes. I think this is really moving forward the notion of what it is anthropology could and should do uh, in the 21st century. And so I have a, a question um, that is related to some of my own work as a physician, and and uh, we've had a chance to discuss some of this, but um, I like many anthropologists, very interested in the social life of things. Again, this is from uh, Arjun Apadurai's uh, edited volume of the same name. And uh, I have been working as a physician mostly in Haiti, but also in, uh, in Rwanda over the last three and a half years. And uh, well, on, on one day, at about 10 in the morning, a couple of children, boys who should have been in school, were herding cows and picked up a landmine. And I happened to be the doctor on call when they were uh, carried into the hospital. One of them badly injured, the, less, the other one less so. Now what, what I was told was they had picked up a grenade and I, I, uh, and I didn't stop to think um, whether, was it really a grenade, what was it, um, until after their uh, immediate needs had been tended to. But later I got to thinking, you know, how, what, how does that happen? I mean, I had, as anyone who's watched it, American action movie, and I hope you all have. I don't know if that's allowed at Yale, but as anybody has watched an American action movie knows, you, you pull a pin, 
And these children were herding cows, and they picked it up, and it exploded. And I, and I, I, I went to uh, actually a, a student of mine from Harvard who was there, and I said, can you download some images of a landmine, a plastic, I knew it was plastic because I picked the plastic out of their extremities. And, and I thought it might not be a grenade. And, uh, and so I drew the grenade myself and then showed the pictures of the, to the boy who was less badly injured, you know, which of these was it? And he pointed right to a certain kind of landmine that I knew, of course, had not been manufactured in Rwanda, but had been set there nonetheless. And, uh, and so I began uh, trying to figure, of course, I did all the other things that one does, reported this to authorities, et cetera, and they came and uh, cleared, looked around for other land. They had cleared this area some years before. And, uh, and I, I started, I actually was writing about this and turned back to some of Carolyn's work, again, not work that she discussed today, but work that uh, she's published elsewhere when she wrote uh, about the tomorrow of violence. So what happens after war? And I feel that in the talk that she gave us today, she showed that, you know, there's, and it, just as some things are visible and others are invisible, spectacular violence around war is, is visible. You know, we, we can read about it in the headlines, or, and these days we can see images of it uh, on, uh, on, our, on our computers even. Um, but then there is this, just as with the parallel extra legal economy, there is a parallel extra uh, certainly extra-legal in many senses, violence that goes on after war for generations and generations. And I guess my question, um, after seeing how Carolyn has rendered visible what is invisible to so, so many over quite some years now is, and this is the crass part of the question, and I, and I hope it will stimulate discussion here, I don't think it is the purpose of a, a scholar um, to create public policy. I mean, that's, that would be a heavy burden, and I wouldn't ask Han to show me you know, how 13th century Chinese poetry was of relevance to formulating a response to our financial crisis now. Nor would I darkly interrogate chemists about their motives. But Ka Carolyn's work is so relevant, uh, and it certainly is relevant to me as, a, as someone who works in, 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 in some of the places I do, that I really wonder, when you do render visible what is invisible, what use beyond our work and teaching and, and understanding, which I regard as in and of itself a you know, plenty of reason to do what it is you do, but I'm just wondering if you could put this sort of information, this jarring, shocking information about the size of these economies and how they were, if you could put it before people in a position, elites, of course, to make decisions, who would those people be and, and what might we expect? And again, I'm, I'm not looking for a utopian answer, but just uh, you know, wondering how perhaps we could seize certain openings and use this information you know, beyond our own teaching. So thank you very much. <laughs>